Amen. Uh, Romans, please, chapter number six. Romans, and chapter number six. If you're joining us uh, and you're not regularly a part of our services, I want you to know that we have been for the last couple of months in a verse-by-verse study in the book of Romans, and we've made it to chapter number six. And the theme has been good news for a broken world. And so, just as a recap, to remember what our overall trajectory has been is this. We live in a broken world. We know that. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you understand that things are not right. Now, the world has proposed a lot of different ways to make it right. Some people believe that if we can just get the right political leaders in place, or the right economic system in place, then that would fix the problems in the world. Other people think that if we could just get the right education and healthcare systems in place, that that would fix the brokenness in the world. Now, as Christians, we support all of those endeavors. We believe that we are to be the salt and light of the world, and we should do everything we can to repair the injustices and the problems with the world, but we also understand that the brokenness of this world is, runs far deeper than fixing it with, than, than an attempted repair with any of these solutions, because the problem lies in the heart of men and women, and it is only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ That is the answer to the brokenness of the world. And Romans, the book of Romans, just unpacks that magnificently. So would you read the theme verses with me? Most weeks we try to read these verses. They're found in Romans 1 and verses 16 and verse number 17. So, uh, Kayla, I'm not sure if we've got those ready to go, but chapter 1 and verse 16 and verse number 17. Let's read this out loud. Good and strong together begin. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Not ashamed of the gospel. Well... Today's topic from chapter number six is the new life, the new life. Now, we're going to look at verses one through 11 in Romans chapter six. When we talk about the new life, we're not talking about turning over a new leaf. We're not talking about a new lifestyle. When the Bible talks about a new life, It is speaking of a complete and total transformation of who we are as individuals. In fact, I put a scripture on your notes this morning from Matthew chapter 16. This is one of the most direct statements of Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Consider this. Then said Jesus unto his disciples. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. How are we doing so far? Self-denial has been found 
in a few different philosophies. Self-denial is something that can be beneficial in life. But now he takes it a step further. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross. Now, we could be tempted to over-spiritualize that, right? And we could think, well, you know, I could wear a cross around my neck or I could, I, 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 you know, we could have some idea like that. But when Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross, in the, remember, the disciples at this point, they haven't seen Jesus die on the cross. They don't know about his resurrection. So immediately when they hear, take up the cross, they are thinking of one word, and that word is what? Crucifixion or death? Because the cross meant death. So this is kind of a strange saying of Jesus to them at this point. They say, I'm supposed to take up my cross and die. Now, look at what he says next in verse number, in verse number 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus taught that there was an exchange. That, the, that if you want to hang on to your life, if you desire to hang on to your identity, that you could not have eternal life. But in losing, in losing who you are, you find eternal life in Christ. Now, the book of Romans chapter 6 expounds this. So look with me now at Romans chapter number 6, and you'll see Jesus' teaching now explained. Because how many of you realize Jesus never, Jesus would give statements, but he never always fully explained them. That's why he gave us the apostles. That's why the apostle Paul is going to expound this, this idea of a completely new life, to lose oneself, to be found in Christ. Now, chapter number six begins, verse number one, with a question. Notice the question in verse number one. What shall we say then? Now, that's an interesting way to begin. You'd have to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, the statement was this, that where sin abounded, and if you were to just look at your Bible back to verse number 20 at the end of the verse, you'd find it says, but where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. So in other words, if there is sin that's present, but then the grace of God is present, which is greater, my sin or God's grace? You tell me which is greater, my sin or God's grace? How much greater? Much more. It's, that's not proper English, but it's much more greater. That's what the grace of God is. If, if there's sin, you say, oh, but, but I, I can't come to God because I have sin. Well, the apostle says, well, if you have abounding sin, good news is there is much more abounding grace. Amen. But then someone might say this. Well, if that's the case, then should I just keep sinning? You understand the logic here? The, the argument is, saying, well, if I come to God by grace and my sin is an opportunity for God's grace, then you know what? 
How about I just keep sinning? Because the more I sin, then the more what? The more grace. How many of you have had anybody ever say that to you? They've said to you, well, uh, you know, maybe they come from a very religious background. And they say, well, wait a minute. If my justification, if my salvation is entirely by grace, then why wouldn't I just receive God's grace and then live my life however I want? How many of have had somebody say that to you or ask you that question? Well, I love it when people ask that question because that's a question that's asked in the Bible right here in Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse number two begins with the most emphatic statement in the Greek language. It's translated here, God forbid. It's actually not a, as I understand it, that is actually not a literal translation here. But what the translator was looking for was a statement in English that accurately represented the impact of the Greek words. There is no stronger negative statement that could be used in the Greek language. So the English translator said, what is this the equivalent? What is the equivalent in English? And they use this phrase, God forbid. In other words, absolutely not to the extreme. Absolutely, positively, no, nope, definitely not, God forbid. That is the answer to the question. Do we just go on living this life? After all, if you've been, if you've been following our study, Paul spent five chapters explaining justification by what? Faith. We are justified by faith. Faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. Now, what you learn here is point number one this morning. In verses one and two, I've basically already taught halfway through point number one, so I should give the, I should give the point, and that is this. True grace, the true grace of God at work in our life always brings transformation. If you have received the grace of God, it changes you. It changes me. My dad often tells a story like this. Many of you know my, my dad. He's, he's actually preaching this morning in Pittsfield, so he's not in the service. But many of you know his testimony that before he was a Christian, he lived a very ungodly lifestyle. Alcohol, drugs, the, many of you, you lived that kind of life before you were a Christian. And so people will say, oh, do you mean that now that you're a Christian, so if, you're, if God just forgave you, so now you can just go on living however you want. And my dad's answer is, you know what? You're absolutely right. I do live however I want. He says, I drink all the beer that I want. I smoke all the marijuana that I want. I party all that I want. And some of you are a little worried. You're like, well, I thought he's one, you know, he wanted, if you're new, you're like, wait a minute, isn't that one of the pastors of the church here? What are you talking about? His point is this. The grace of God changed his life so he doesn't want any of those things anymore. Now, does that mean that we never have temptations? No. But it means that grace has changed us fundamentally, that we understand what God, by, by the blood of Jesus, has accomplished in our lives, and it changes our want to. 
It changes our desires because grace transforms. And Paul says, if you could give me the liberty, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, are you crazy? That's the most absurd thing. That, 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 that is the most absurd conclusion to make about grace. If you believe that grace is a license, you don't understand what the grace of God is. You see, grace always, you're going to see here, grace always empowers us. It never excuses us. It empowers us. It doesn't excuse us. Now, what you find here, for those of you that like to study this, you know, theologically, is you find chapter 6 is a pivot point in the book of Romans. For five chapters, we've talked about one part of our salvation, and that is the word justification. Right? So for five chapters, it's all about we're justified, justified, justified. For a quick review, justified means I am declared to be righteous. By faith, God sees me, even though I'm a sinner. He says, you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, so I declare that you are now righteous. That's a wonderful truth of our salvation. But now in chapter 6 and following, through I think through about chapter 8, the theme now is not our justification, but let's introduce a new word. Everybody excited for the new word, right? You're on the edge of your seats, ready to go? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. So, it's the word sanctification. Now, there's a difference. If you're, if, if you're, a, if you're growing in your faith and you've never studied this, you're just like, man, I'm just glad that I'm saved. You know, we sang that song, he saved my soul, like I'm saved. Well, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's teaching us how, how far and how life-encompassing our salvation is, that God has saved every part of us. So it's not just that we are forgiven. It's not just that we are declared righteous, but God says now we are sanctified. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means this. You can write this down if you like to take notes. Sanctification means to be made holy. To be made holy. In other words, and, and literally, if you, in the original language, sanctification is holification. To be made holy. It's what it literally means. The sanctified ones are the saints. The sanctified ones are the ones who've been made holy. Or it means to be set apart. It means that we now are holy. Now, this is important. Sanctification has two aspects. There is immediate sanctification, and then there is progressive sanctification. This is a really important concept to understanding most of the New Testament, actually. So, so I'd encourage you to, to, if this seems a bit, you know, academic or, you know, theological for you, it's worth it. This is important. This is a key to understanding your New Testament. That we are sanctified both instantly, the moment we believe on Jesus, but then we are brought into a life of what is called, referred to as progressive sanctification. Let me explain it this way. Explain it this way. When you believe in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, God says, you now belong to who? Yeah, you belong to me. 
Therefore, I declare you to be wholly mine. I will not share you with anyone. Very similar to a marriage. When I was, when I, when, when Deborah and I got married, we pledged ourselves, in a sense, to sanctification one to another. It's in those, those old vows and forsaking all others, keep thee only to myself as long as we both shall live. That's a picture of sanctification. I belong to you. Now, is it possible sometimes husbands and wives, marriages are tested? Sometimes your Christian faith, your walk with God is tested. So in other words, let's put it this way. God says, you are mine. You used to belong to the world, but now you belong to me. That's instant. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, do you always behave like you belong only to God? We don't. We don't. And the whole process, the whole teaching of the New Testament is to bring us into our active participation in sanctification, to cause us to say, I, will, I am going to come closer in my relationship to Christ. I'm going to be, and you'll see this in, later on, I'm going to be conformed to Christ. So sanctification is both immediate and it's progressive, that God is doing a work. So let's talk about how God has accomplished that work. Look with me now at the burial and resurrection in verses 3 down through verse 5. Verse 3 down through verse 5. Answering this question about, do we just keep sinning? He says this, Know ye not, in other words, don't you realize, so many of us, as were, keyword, what is it? Baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his, what? Death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. There's a lot in these verses. It says here that, the, the, that we were baptized into his death. Don't you realize that in verse number three? Now, there's, a meet, there's an immediate question that if you are a thinking person, you study the Bible, there's an immediate question that comes up in your mind or my mind as we look at this passage. And the question is this. When we see baptism here, what exactly is it referring to? Now, how many of you known, how many of you are aware that baptism has been a major source of contention in the churches throughout church history? In fact, beliefs about baptism are the main, have historically been the main one of the main dividers between denominations. As far as what does the Bible teach? about baptism. Now, depending on your background, when you see that word baptized, 
let's say if you came from a very traditional background in, um, in this region of the country, if you come, and it depends, again, where, you, where you're brought up, but if you come from a very traditional background here, you probably have some strong Roman Catholic influences in your life. And if that, not everybody, but if that's your case, when you see the word baptism, what is the first thought that comes to mind? What is the, what is the image that comes in your mind? A baby and being sprinkled. There are also some Protestant traditions that, that sprinkle babies, though it's for a different reason than the Roman Catholics do. So depending on your background, you may be, when you see baptism, you're thinking of a, of a baptismal font at the front of a, the altar and, and somebody in a robe holding a little baby and sprinkling water on them. Well, that image is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. That, that picture is nowhere to be found in, this, in the Bible. You'll never see that anywhere. So that, so we, so we can cross that off. When we see baptized there, we can cross that off. Now, if you have a more Baptist or evangelical background, when you see the word baptism, what immediately comes to your mind? Might be a riverside, might be a lake, might be a, uh, a lot of churches now, they have these, like, the, the big thing now is churches are using these feeding troughs. I mean, you've seen pictures of that, and they'll put a big tank in the church. And, but either way, whatever the scene is, you see a person, a minister at the front of the church, and a person in deep water being dunked or immersed in water and then coming back up. That's the picture you have in your mind. Right? You with me so far? Okay. Awesome. That is a biblical picture. That is what occurred in the New Testament. In fact, next week, we are going to have, we have a baptismal tank that we sit in the floor right here, and we're going to have people, we are Baptists after all, so we believe after you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, when you believed on Christ as your Savior, as the Bible teaches, you are to be, as the word baptizo, baptizo literally means in the Greek, it literally means to immerse or to dunk. And so we are going to take that believer, we're going to submerge them in water very quickly and bring them back up, okay? But I have a question for you now. Is that what is being referenced in Romans 6, 3 through 5? Some of you are students of the word. I respect that. It is not. Because the problem is this. Baptism... If, if, if this is speaking about water baptism, then baptism would be accomplishing what Paul just spent five chapters saying is only accomplished by what? You, you got it. By what? Faith. For five chapters, Paul says you're made right with God only by your faith. So now in chapter 5, to introduce a new concept and say, oh, well, getting dunked in the water, coming up out of the water, that now accomplishes something for you. It would be a complete contradiction of what took place. Another reason uh, that this can't be referring to water baptism is because you'll notice this, interestingly, in verse number, oh, in verse number 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, all, we shall be also in the likeness of his what? Resurrection. Now, if the water, some person might say, well, yes, the water accomplishes that spiritual death. But then how is it accomplishing the resurrection? That's not happening until the future. 
So that's another problem with this view. But the solution is actually quite simple. And that is, there is a baptism that is far more important and far more significant than water baptism. And that is what's known, what is known as the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. Let me give you two verses to consider. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 11. This is John the Baptist who baptized people in deep water. That was like his thing. That's his name, John the Baptizer. But John downplays his baptism. Look what he says. He says to the crowds, I indeed, you know, with all his camel hair and bug juice on his beard from eating the locusts and honey, he's looking out, he's preaching at them. And he said, I'm just, I did that to get ready for teen camp this week. So I'm just warming up. So he says to the, he says to the crowd, I indeed baptize you with what? You can do better than that. Please help me out. Ready? I, I baptize you with what? Water. Unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with who? The Holy Ghost. And with fire. And, and then it talks about his, the judgment of Christ coming. So there are some people that think, yeah, I heard a, a Pentecostal preacher one time. He was fired up. I mean, he was like preaching up a storm, which was, I mean, I was into it for a little while. And then he's like, I am baptized with fire. And I'm like, oh, buddy, that verse is talking about the eternal judgment. You might want to watch out for that one right there. But there's a baptism of the Holy Ghost and with fire. In other words, those who reject Christ are immersed in judgment. That is the baptism of what? Fire. But those who come to Christ are baptized or immersed by whom? The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. In fact, look at this, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. That's the body of Christ. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Romans 6 is explaining what happens. You see, here's the, here's the, here's the truth here. The moment... The moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you. It's a supernatural baptism. It's where you are placed into Christ. Your spirit is transformed. And it says here, it says in this, in this passage, in verse number, verse number three, you were baptized into his death. You, you are now, in, in a spiritual sense, when you receive Christ, you died with Christ because then your life will be what? Raised and resurrected with Christ. There's a spiritual baptism. You're like, well, well, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, I think the Holy Spirit knew we would ask because the verses 6 through 11 explain what it means. Explain how this comes to pass. So look with me in Romans 6 
and verses 6 through 11. This now is, so grace transforms us. There's a burial and a resurrection in this spiritual baptism. And now there's freedom in Christ. By the way, let me just, let me just put a little parenthetical in here right now. The beauty of water baptism is that it pictures our spirit baptism. In fact, in the scriptures, people didn't wait to be baptized. Like we are accustomed in, in, in the last century of biblical churches, people have preached the gospel and they've called people to make a decision to pray or to come forward or something like that. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, when people preach the gospel, if people said yes to Jesus, they invited them to come and what? Be baptized. That was their altar call, so to speak. If you believed on Christ. So, so in most of the early church, the moment you believed, you were immediately baptized in water. Why? Because you were picturing the death and burial of Jesus and his resurrection. Buried with him in baptism, raised in life. So the water baptism that we're commanded to do it pictures that. It typifies it. It's an example of it. So it's, a, it's a, our statement of identification with Christ. And so it's very important, but in a symbolic sense, and in a sense of obedience. So now let's get to this freedom in Christ, this new life that's explained. Look now at verse number 6. Knowing this. What we know... And how we live are sometimes two different things. In fact, if you'd skip down and just peek with me at verse number 11, that's an interesting verse too. Verse 11 says, likewise, what's the word? Reckon. It means understand. Think about. So back in verse 6, he says, know this. In verse 11, reckon or think about or understand this. He says, Paul says, if you're going to be sanctified, if grace is going to continue to transform you, then you need to understand something. Knowing this, that our old man, whose old man? Ours. That means mine and yours. If you're a believer, our old man, what? Is crucified. Is crucified with him. Now, this doesn't say should be crucified. This is super important. It doesn't say our old man can be crucified. In fact, it doesn't say, and, and there's other teaching in the New Testament that talks about dying daily, you know, like surrendering every day, but that's not what this is saying. This is referring to a past action that happened at one time. And he says, knowing this, our old man is crucified. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not up to you if your old man is crucified. There was a time in history, there was a point in history when who you were died. And that happened the moment. Or as, as John Newton said in Amazing Grace, the hour I first believed. The moment of salvation, the old man died. Why though? There's a purpose statement in this verse. That the old man is crucified with him. And what's the purpose word here now? That. The purpose word is that, for a reason. The old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. 
another purpose word. I, I'm, I'm into noticing the, this thought pattern here. I circle those kind of things when I study these things sometimes. That, that henceforth, for the purpose that we should not what? Why did your old, why did, why did your old identity perish when you believed on Christ? Is it so you could be all excited and sing a song that says, I'm free, I am free, I am free? Is that, now, now I hope you do sing that song, but it wasn't, the old man didn't die so that we could feel liberated. The old man died so we could live the liberated life. There's a purpose behind it. Now, what is the old man? The old man is defined as the one who was the slave to sin. The old man is my pre-Christian identity. Before Christ, I belonged to a different family. Before Jesus, I belonged to a different kingdom. Before Jesus, my soul was dead in trespasses and sin. But now with Jesus, with Christ, I am free from sin. I am free from its power. We're going to see in the, in the coming verses, in the coming weeks, that there's this operation in our lives where before we knew Christ, sin told us what to do and what do we do? Yes, sir, Mr. Sin, I will do exactly what you say. I feel like I want to do this, I do it. Why? Because the old man, the old, my old identity was a slave to sin. But Jesus said, I want who you used to be to die. That is dead. So, now does that mean my sin nature died? No. We know that our sin nature is still with us until eternity. The difference with the old man is the old man was the slave to his sin nature. The new man is free to follow Christ. And he says, you need to know this. You need to realize this. That the body of sin might be destroyed. What is the body of sin? You see, the body is the host. It's the operation. So in other words, sin was a principle inside of us that needed a place to live itself out. And it would live itself out in our human body. In, in our broken condition. And Jesus said, that body of sin can be destroyed because you died with me on the cross. Now, the death of the old man makes way for the new life of the new man. Look at verse 7. Verse number 7. For he that is dead is what? Freed from sin. Now, verse 8, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also what? Live with him. Now, in verse 9, another knowing word. Knowing. Knowing. Some people are, some people get very focused on doing. Right? They're like, you know, Pastor, just tell me what to do. Well, so much of the New Testament tells us before we know, before we do, we need to know. We need to think, we need to understand. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath what? No more dominion over him. No more dominion. Christ defeated death on the cross. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. 
Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be what? Dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the new life in Christ. This is, you say, well, this is the, this is the foundation of my sanctification. You say, Ethan, I, I believe in Christ. I'm following Christ, but I just, I keep struggling with this habit. I keep struggling with this attitude. I keep struggling with this behavior that I have. Can I get a witness? Anybody, that's been your Christian experience. I, but I, Paul says this, before you go on any self-improvement plan, before you take steps and you discipline yourself or anything like that, Paul says you need to understand that you are free from the power of sin. Can I encourage you to do something very, very practical this morning? Super practical. I want you to right now, either on your paper or in your mind, jot down, make a note of what it is, what, what sin you're struggling with, and whatever it is. Jeopardy music playing. So you can think about it. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it is something in your family. Maybe there's disharmony at home. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a habit. But there's something that you're like, you know what? And, and God's speaking to your heart right now. So the Holy Spirit does that. He convicts us. What is it? To think about it. What are you struggling with? Maybe it's, maybe it's not an active sin. Maybe it's a passive sin of your mind. Maybe it's you are a doubter or you're in fear or you have bitterness or, or one of those sins that affects us. Think about what it is. Now, what we want, what we want is we want to get that out of our lives by works. We want to read an article, or we want a pastor to say, all right, step number one, step number two, step number three, this will give you victory. We live in a, in a blog world, you know, or a our Facebook post world. Three quick steps to do this. But can I share this with you? Try this. Let me ask you a question. How did you receive Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, you received him by what? By grace through faith. I'd encourage you to try to find victory by grace through faith. And, and as, we, as we end the service, you can surrender this to the Lord. But in the moment this week when you face that temptation, I would encourage you to pray, maybe not a sinner's prayer, pray a saint's prayer. Something like this. Jesus, I'm facing this temptation but I am dead to this sin. And I'm alive to you. So I believe that you will give me victory. With a heart of faith, you pray that in that situation and you see if God doesn't bring you through it. Because the Christian life, justification and sanctification, we don't begin in the Spirit and then continue in our flesh. It's all the grace of God. It's all the, the, the faith in His grace flowing through us. If you want victory, 
take that step of faith. Say, Jesus, I believe. You know, we, if you, a lot of men have struggled with lust or addictions like that, and they want, and they'll set up, I'm all for these things, set up accountability, wonderful. They'll set up, you know, things to block their devices and, and all these good, healthy steps. I am for them, but what they do is they, they keep the temptation away, but they don't give you any power over the temptation. Those steps, those helpful steps, we think, well, if I just don't go there, look at that, watch this, or if I have this safeguard in my place, that, that will give me victory. It won't give you victory. It will just keep you from the temptation. But how many of you realize that Satan has a PhD in temptation. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you focus on what you do to avoid the temptation, you're missing the whole point. Paul says, find your victory, find your freedom in what Christ has done, in his power, in the fact that you can say in that temptation, listen, I tried to block all this temptation out of my life, but it came anyway. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to the temptation. But in that moment, say, say, Jesus, you saved me by faith, and you're going to save me through this temptation right now. I believe by faith that you will deliver me. He's never not answered that prayer. He's faithful. But what happens is in the temptation, we forget that it's the power of Christ in us. There's an, an, an old hymn, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. And then there's the chorus to that song. Some, that, some, of, you, some of you know it. Ask the Savior to help you. Strengthen, comfort, and keep you. He is willing to save you. He will carry you through. It's the truth. It's Christ, His power. So Paul has a simple message. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? I always finish, or I try to always finish, with two applications. I just gave the application to believers in Christ. You're struggling in your daily life. Give it to the power of Christ. But there's an application for those who may, you're not a believer. You've never, there's never been a time in your life where you have received Christ as your Savior. If that is you, whether you're in this room or you're watching the video today or listening to the message, you will never have peace in life. You will never have victory. You can never be the person that you want yourself to be because you are trapped with your sinful nature. You are trapped as a servant of sin. But Jesus says, if you will come to me by faith, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You will be set free. Who you are as a sinner will die and you will receive new and eternal life through Christ. Simple question, has there been a moment in your life where you have personally received Jesus as your Savior? If not, everything that we're speaking about, it starts in that moment where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe you died and rose for me. I ask you to save me. Could we bow our heads and close our eyes?
We're going to finish with a time of reflection, a time of prayer, and a time of invitation. What we mean by invitation is that we are invited to respond to the Word of God. So first of all, if you've not received Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to receive Christ right now. You say, Ethan, how do I do that? Well, you can express your belief in a prayer. And I invite you to pray this with me. If you're ready to receive Christ, would you pray this with me right now? Say, Dear God, I do know that I'm a sinner. I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I put my faith and I put my trust in you and you alone. Jesus, please save me. Please save me. The scriptures say that if you will call on Jesus' name, he will save. Would you do that? It, the words I prayed, there, there was nothing in those words unless they expressed the belief of your heart. In this quiet moment, in this room, we're listening to this message, wherever you are, would you just, if you've never done that, would you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Put your faith in him, repent of your sin, and trust Christ. Then Christian, as we have just, just a minute, just, just a short moment, maybe you need to surrender. Maybe you've been struggling against sin in your flesh and you need to trust the power of Christ. Why don't you surrender that to him in this quiet moment as the instruments play. Let's spend some time with the Lord. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you give us through Christ, the grace that you give us so freely. God, we pray that if someone in here has not put their faith and trust in you, that today would be the day that they would be convicted of their sin, realize their need for a savior, that they can't do it on their own, there's nothing good in them, but that they need Jesus. Pray that they would believe today. Father, for those of us who have, who have accepted you as our savior, who believe in you, we pray that we would live in the grace that you've provided. God, I pray that uh, we would understand the freedom from sin, the freedom uh, from this world and this culture that you've given us. So God, we pray that we'd live in that, that we would uh, stand in your victory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.